Hey, welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide here, and I want to jump right into it. We had the Mile High class this past weekend. I want to thank all the guys that came out and shot that. It was an excellent group of guys. We had a really good time. Uh, funny, man, we, we ended up with like every imaginable uh, weather condition except snow, and it pretty much felt like on uh, Sunday morning that it was going to snow. We were all wearing jackets and it was telling us it was going to be 90 and it actually got to 90, but like late in the afternoon, but until lunch, it was pretty darn cold out there. We did get on Saturday. It was funny. So we show up Saturday morning and this is the day we're going to shoot all day. Right. So no classroom, just go straight to the line. And it's like, maybe a four to six mile an hour wind. It was like money, you know, good day. We start gathering dope. We're shooting everybody out, uh, collecting information and getting ready to do that. And then like lunch comes and it was like, you flicked a switch. You can see it. So it was a really, really mellow day. And you could see this front in front of us that was kind of building up steam off to the side a little bit. And it, it just, it sucked all the energy out of the world. So we had these really good, calm conditions. And I said to, um, God, I think it was Craig, I might have said to one of the shooters on the line, I said, yeah, but then it's going to turn around and throw it all back at us once it gets closer and it comes over the top. Well, sure enough, come like about three hours worth, about noontime, it was flicking a switch it immediately went to 25 to 45 mile an hour winds. So, so strong. I mean, it was knocking over all kinds of stuff. I'll get into that in a second. But the winds were a total headwind coming at us so strong that it threw Doug's rifle off the bench. We had a rifle sitting on its bipod and rear bag, sitting on the benches that are in the videos that I have and any images you saw, the range that we use. There's the two metal benches there. The wind threw his rifle off of it. Like, oh, damn. And then it kept knocking the tripods over. My my tripod went over a bunch of time. Took a chunk out of the eyepiece of my Shirovsky scope because it hit the wood. And the wood has this, like, aluminum siding that it caught that peeks out just over it. Kind of holds the dirt in uh, on the platform. And sure enough, my eyepiece edge of it caught that. Took a giant chunk out of it. Um, you know, hit my tripod, did the same thing. So anytime you walked away from the spotter, I actually literally had to lay my tripod on the ground because it was just immediately would knock your stuff over. So uh, funny, we, we got these, you know, 25 to 45 mile an hour winds and they were literally like 25, ramp up to 45, back down to 25, ramp back up to 45. So uh, everybody had gone to lunch at that moment when it first, first started. So I said to Mike, I said, hey, man, you, you got your rifle all, all, you know, handy and all set up. And he has the AX, uh, you know, newer AX model that he's shooting short action in six Creedmoor. And that's Mike's typical rifle. And in fact, one of the students used it the day before because he was waiting. He had a bad bolt shroud or something. So he was waiting for a bolt shroud to come in the mail and, and be delivered so he can use his rifle. So um, Mike breaks his stuff out. And in a, you know, averaging 30 mile an hour headwind, we doped his rifle out to see what the, what it would do. Uh, factory Hornaday, six millimeter Creedmoor, nothing. He had a half mil of wind because there was a little bit of a left to right component, 
but it was mainly a headwind coming straight down the pipe at us. There's videos there. You could see it. Uh, I posted a video of it knocking my tripod straight back and all that because the wind's coming straight down at us. It wasn't the typical. Usually when we have a head and tail wind, it bounces, you know, couple seconds on the left, couple seconds to the right, couple seconds on the left, couple seconds down the right. This one was a little bit more straight on with us and had, a, like I said, a little bit of left component. So 0.5 a wind is all he was using left to right, but the head and tail wind. His elevation, dead on. We shot the truing bars, okay? We wanted to take a look at the truing bars that we're using, and, and he used the 600-yard truing bar, shot the water lines, the whole thing, and then he went to 8, and he shot the 800 to see the same thing, using the truing bar at 6 and the truing bar at 800 in these really crazy conditions. No change. Elevation remained the same consistent so he just pulled up his number shot center punched on the chewing bar went over to the uh, little larue target we had over there with a water line on it touching the line on the water line so there was no elevation variations in this really strong headwind that we had going on and then it was kind of funny because like three hours later once that front moved a little past us it was all gone again and then at the end of the day, when we ended up cleaning up, it was like perfectly calm. Next morning came out, had a little bit of breeze and we, we got some really good wind training in. We got some, everybody got to shoot out to the 1425, no drama there. Uh, it, it worked out really well. And then um, we had one of the shooters with an AXMC 300 wind mag. We took him and one of the other guys out to a mile um, didn't put up the big plate for him, just used the regular 18 by 30 inch plate at a mile. And he, he got a decent hit, although the wind was a little sporty. Originally, we started off, I gave him a three mil wind call and he was within 0.2 of the plate. Then it just like over time, you know, it, 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 the next one was like two, you know, uh, 2.8 mils, then 2.5 mils. Every as, as the wind was kind of notching down. We kept losing two tenths of wind, two tenths of wind. And then he ended up making an impact at like 2.5 mils of wind, I think it was. But it had notched down from like, we had one, it was like that three mil was the first one. Then he did like a three two. Then it went down to like a two eight. Then it went back to a three to like a two eight and then two five. And we impacted on that. But it was really screwy wind. Um, and, and, and that's the game, man. It's WTF, right? With wind being number one because it's just so prevalent out there. Um, a couple of the notes, the training notes on what's going on with everything. Uh, Tennessee sold out. No more slots left, okay? We're completely full in Tennessee, so that's a done deal. We'll catch you guys next year. Um, we're, we're definitely looking forward to this class, and we're going to be pushing things to as, as, as hard as we can to to see what we can do moving forward in Tennessee because we really want to make that a kind of southeast destination for you guys. And so uh, a lot of conversations are going on behind the scenes, what we're going to do in Tennessee, how we're going to do it and, and work that range because it can be sort of this very similar uh, you know, Alaska-type destination for people being in that Franklin, Tennessee area. Uh, speaking of Alaska, to everybody, big fires up there all around uh, the Montana and uh, Sheep Creek Rivers right there. 
there are there's a giant fire um right before you get to Sheep Creek Lodge there's this little area of Caswell or Cantwell or something like that um and there's a little kind of like mini mini type convenience store that's right there apparently it burned down to the ground and luckily for us the fire crews are using the Sheep Creek Lodge as their headquarters and they're staging at the lodge but all that entire area right now has been evacuated with fires up there. Uh, Mark's saying they haven't really had any rain in that area of Alaska since it rained when I was up there in June. I mean, we had some afternoon showers that were taking place, nothing that interfered or, or you know, did anything with our training-wise, but there was definitely afternoon showers. But he says it hasn't rained since then, and it's just been ridiculous, you know? Um, so... Uh, you know, hopefully everybody's safe up there and, and, and the fire gets put under control quickly. We're supposed to be back um, next month in September for our, our final class of the season. And then the uh, lodges reunion, excuse me, the lodges reunion that uh, is taking place. Their, their uh, ownership of the lodge kind of coincides with us doing classes up there. It's like they took over the lodge in August and then, you know, we started going up shortly after but um no definitely uh you know hopefully everything works out well and everybody's safe up in alaska i mean we've been watching that like crazy like email like hourly email updates uh mark and i been texting each other back and forth uh regarding that but hopefully everybody's safe and good at sheep creek uh we're thinking about you down here and we're, we're keeping an eye on the situation um, I'm going to answer to some, I'm going to go over some questions and to, and to talk about some other stuff. There, there's been some, some comments and things, uh, coming in. So, um, what is this one? We got, uh, oh God, sorry. I don't know how I missed it. The discussion of MOA being the majority errors were a shit. I, I don't even know what that is. I must've missed something there. I may have to go back. So I don't know what that question is. Um. Uh, Frank, I'd be interested in a September class. Okay, yeah. So I had, um, I, I I have like seven people, according to Mike, on a waiting list for the mile high classes. Uh, a couple people, like October is over full. Uh, that's our final mile high class. And there wasn't one on the books for September. But apparently I have like a seven person waiting list. So I gave um, Mike and Jamie a date of like September 20th to the 22nd, 20 to 22nd, that I can do a uh, the class for Mile High and get everybody who's potentially on that waiting list or who might want to take a last-minute class. Um, Mike and Jamie are actually at a uh, trade show here in Denver. There's some kind of retail trade show thing happening, so I know they're out of the office today, and I don't know how many days the show is. But call Mike or call Mile High, and if you're interested in this last-minute insert class, I don't care if it's smaller. I mean, it can have six people in it for all I care because I know it's last-minute. But I do know we had people that were on a waiting list. And if I can, I want to get them all off the list and do it, and I can do it in September. So if you do have an interest interest in a September class, uh, give it a couple days, but call Mike at Mile High and talk to him about that or, or talk to Jamie. I don't think there's anything on their website where you can just click and buy it. I think you'd pretty much have to go old school, follow up, 
talk to them, do your deposits or whatever the case may be. Um, but there is an opening for the 20th to the 22nd of September here in Colorado to do our final class of the year. I, you know, like I said, we have an October class, but it's it's overbooked right now. So I won't be able to do it. And then, you know, October is pretty much going to end it for the year. So anybody who's interested in that, definitely go. But, yeah, thanks for uh, talking about that. Um, uh, God, he's all weird numbers. He's interested. But somebody's interested in a, in a civilian class. And regarding class handouts, it's probably better. Oh, hang on. Sorry, Kiana called. I'll edit that little piece out. It's like, you there, you there. Um, okay, so one question wondering. So uh, this guy wondering if the data collecting regarding scope tracking will be released ever. We did post it on Sniper's Hide. So we are, I mean, Mark had posted one of the, uh, an image of the page um, on Facebook on the Alaska Precision Rifle. Uh, they're asking about the scope tracking data that we're collecting and what we're seeing real world out there. You know, we talked about guys are telling us, oh, this is a this is a true MOA scope and we test them in their inch per hundred yard. They're 0.25 inches instead of 0.26. You know, we, we do see this happening and, and we're seeing all this little little small errors and things that come up in these scopes. And we're recording it. We're recording people's data. We're seeing where trends and data are going. And that way we could pull out some person, you know, hey, is this the shooter? Is this the equipment? Is this a trend? You know, what are we looking at? Well, we have this information with scopes. And and so, um, you know, that's one of those things that we're, we're looking at. And we have posted it. So, yeah, this one guy's asking about that. I know that would be a torpedo into the industry, but it would definitely help a lot of us who can only afford a few alpha scopes and need to find acceptable mid-range options. I know my Night Force Collis and Schmitz are good, but, you know, exactly. What we're trying to do is help you make better buying decisions. You know, uh, it's... We do see scopes, I and mean, we had a scope go down this weekend where it was working good for the first, second day, and then, like, on the third day, it stopped responding. It's like, up, your low, dial point three up, hits in the exact same spot, up, try it again, hey, tap the scope, and then the thing jumps up a little bit more. Then we go out to shoot data, and it's not hitting the target or anything on previously known data. Back the scope all the way off redial it back up and now it hits the target again so we see this weird little slippage thing happening and so i'm not recording and i'm I'm, we're mainly recording this information on the mark and frank classes not so much like my personal ones or the mike and frank classes i'm not carrying the god book around although i can probably start putting out some keeping some notes on what's going on there but yeah we're, we're we're we post man if i don't talk about it in the podcast odds are you're gonna find it in the sniper side forum you know that's the big thing to do is go i mean outside of the facebook's and all these other things in the comment section of youtube i own a forum shooting forum we talk about all these things that are going on there and i'm going to bring up a conversation in a minute that i just read on there um, reflecting back on your story about getting back into the slow lane of traffic fast enough, the right lane is a joke on, oh, okay, he's talking about I-70. Yeah, it's, it, 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 I-70's got some issues. Um, thanks, Frank, great podcast, the chocolate combine. Okay, so Gary here. Gary's got a thing going on. Let's read what Gary's doing. Gary Larson from Guardian. Hey, Frank, here's a question, and I think many people are afraid to ask. Um... 
when you see something unsafe, yeah, oh, good, yeah, I'm glad we went back to this. This is a good question I want Gary to, so I'm going to read this. I'm going to read this all through, and then we'll go over it. So, yes, yeah, so, Frank, here's the question that I think many people are afraid to ask. When you see something unsafe as a range officer, even as a shooter, how do you in the moment call ceasefire and either disqualify and either disqualified or have the conversation. So how do you DQ somebody or at least say, hey, dude, you screwed up? I would be willing to bet that people would be really appreciate watching a mock stage with a disqualification, a ceasefire, and a conversation done properly. Um, many match directors and volunteer ROs would really benefit from seeing how an activity should be done. Guardian is putting together a match of and... A safety playbook with standardized of all these things for our matches and even providing a script, which is the way it should be done. This should have been done in the beginning, Gary. Not you. You're right. Guardian's a smaller little thing. It's its own. And, and you know, but think about this. How many years have this series been through it? There is no standardized script. Yeah, they have some guidelines and you can go in the the manual, do this, do that, but do they enforce it? No, so much. Do they have training programs for ROs? Not so much. You know, it still comes down to, you know, let's do the least amount of work possible. Let's let the other guy do their thing, and we're not going to interfere. You know, that's that's the key word. We won't interfere in what Frank's doing with his match. You're supposed to. You're getting paid. To interfere, to be part of it. So let me go back to what Gary says. Um, right? So um, a script and talking points for those events. There should be talking points, but it would be great to see others as well. We are also looking at how to pay for every volunteer range officer to get certified in match safety. Thoughts? Sincerely, and I love this, the chocolate combine. <laughs> Gary, the chocolate combine. You're out of your mind, dude. That's funny as hell. So... I mean, I have to come up right up front and say, number one, every situation is going to be different. The key is going to be, it should just really be, if you see the unsense, unsafe situation, it should immediately be a ceasefire. you got to stop the activity, okay? So whether you just go straight out, ceasefire, then it has to be a respectful conversation. Hey, shooter one. You just had an ND. You know what that is? You know, you know what happened there. What did you most guys know? Here's the thing. Most guys know what they did wrong. If we go back to Joel Wise, PRN, right? In his video, that if you watch that shooter in that video when he had the ND where the RO didn't see it, that guy knew he did it. The difference was. He didn't get called on it, so he was kind of confused on what he should do. When he didn't get called and he didn't see any attention was being paid to him, he turned around and continued to shoot. So right there, we have our first thing, ceasefire. Second thing, reason for the ceasefire, ND. Hey, shooter. You just you just had an ND. You just shot in, you know, for and, and and I hate this, but I'm just going to say it for the standpoint of simplicity. You just had a ND. 
it went outside of 10 yards. It went over the berm. It hit 25 yards in front of us. What's the fact of the matter? You had an ND. It hit in an unsafe way. Especially, like I said, this is a key element that people need to understand. Shooting and hitting short, especially really short, like inside 100 yards short, is dangerous. That's what throws the round back up in the air almost at full speed and can give it a change in trajectory as far as angle goes and direction. So those, to me, are the most dangerous NDs out there, the ones that hit short, okay? It's different, and then the other one would be going long and going over a berm, right? So think about those two scenarios. One that goes short, skips, and drives out higher but farther, or one that goes long and goes over a berm where you don't see what's behind that and you don't have, uh, you know, command of your round. So ceasefire, number one, address the shooter and be respectful and then explain the facts. You just had an ND, it hit short and then left the range. So now it becomes a case, is this a stage DQ or is it a match DQ? What's your rule going to be on that? You can say, I'm going to give you a stage DQ. I will call the match director over to determine if it's a range DQ or a match DQ. So the first thing, it should start off as a stage DQ. Hey, you just had an ND. It hit the berm 25 yards to the left. Okay, maybe you're going to say it hit the berm, it hit the target, it did whatever. It was not necessarily... An unsafe round, it was just an unsafe act. Stage DQ. Then you bring in the big gun to determine whether or not that's going to be a match DQ. That should be up to the match director and not the RO. I would advise the RO that you're giving that shooter a stage DQ. To me, stage DQ shouldn't be bad. They should be a tool to help um, instill the safe, the safety standards you're looking for for your event. So to me, that should not be a big deal. Do a do a um, do a stage DQ, and then you can put it fill in the blanks and say, "Oh, he was dry firing prior, and he put the mag in and then dry fired a final time and shot a live round. I've seen that a bunch of times, you know. I've seen guys get down on the line, they'll dry fire, they'll put that mag in, and they won't go over the top. They'll actually pick a round up, and then they'll get a shot. So it might be in a paper target, and it's not. You don't shoot as many on the line as we used to, but I have seen it. So say he hits the target. He dry fires, he fires a live round, hits the target. Okay, stage DQ. He DQ shot when he wasn't expecting to, but you're not going to throw him out of the match because it hit the target. It was safe. It went downrange. You know that kind of thing. If you want to, if you want to split that hair, okay. But here's 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 the thing to realize as well, and we mentioned this before with safety um, wise. If he did it once, and there's no consequence. What says he won't do it again where there is a consequence? And then whose fault is that? Okay, if you're running a match, you're probably covering some kind of insurance. If shooter A has an ND and you let it go because it hit the target, no consequence. He hit the target. 
Then shooter A, the next day, does it again. But this time, there's a negative consequence. Well, if insurance or anything else has to be involved outside of the match, if the third party now has to get involved, it's your fault, not his fault. He demonstrated a issue with safety and protocols previously. You excused it and it happened again with no consequence the first time. Now that's your problem. But if you had a consequence, hey, the guy had this, because think about what'll happen. Everybody knows at the match what's going on. So if you kind of don't and just isolate that one incident and then somebody comes in and has to testify or talk about it or give a deposition or do whatever the case may be, and that fourth person says, well, I was in the squad with him and he did the same thing, but he hit the target, but he shot when he wasn't supposed to or he didn't shoot when he was meaning to, but it hit the berm, so they let it go. Then he did it the next day, and something happened. Well, that is a pattern. Any good lawyer will tear that up, and you'll be in a problem. So I think, Gary, it should be the RO should only be responsible for his stage. So cease fire, address the shooter, clear make safe, right? Shooter, cease fire, clear make safe your weapon. Come back to the line. Hey, you had an ND. You hit over here, or we didn't see where you hit, but we know you fired when you weren't supposed to. I got to give you a stage DQ. It's going to be sent up to the match director to determine if there's a bigger penalty to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, assessed. So that's kind of what we're looking at, right? So that would be my way of doing it, Gary, and that's kind of somehow I would write it for you guys. Um, Oh, okay, another good question here. Renegade's got a good question. All right, so hopefully that answers Gary, the Chocolate Combine's question, um, and and it gets him into a a good spot. Now, Renegade's got a question. He says, hey, Frank, what does quartering the target mean, and can you expand on that, please? Absolutely. So, and I just threw my phone on the ground. Hang on. That wasn't cool. All right, I'm back. So, quartering the target. So what you're going to do is think around circle plate or round one inch dot, whatever the case may be. If you're quartering a target, you're cutting it into four equal pieces. Okay. So I have to quarter that target into the center because I want to use the most amount of what's visible to cut it up. So say I have a target that is only, you know, like a, four inch triangle uh, 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 there's an ipsic target out there that has a six inch head that's leaning out behind a tree and that's all you could see is even though it's a full-size ipsic you only could see a piece of the head peeking out from behind a tree maybe there's a little bit of the shoulder or the arm or whatever so what you're going to do is pick the largest part of that target and quarter it and that means putting the cross here in the middle and cutting it into four equal pieces now, let's expand on that. Let's think about a win call. I got an Ipsic target out there. I got a, I got a 45 percenter, 8 by 11, not including the head. That might be with the head, but 8 by 11 inch target. It's at 400 yards away. I got a 12 mile an hour wind coming, so I'm going to use maybe three quarters 
of a win hold on it, something like that. Uh, you know, 0.4. Let's say we got a six mile an hour gun, so times two, so it's a 0.8 win hold. Okay, so I got a 0.8 win call on a 400 yard IPSC. So I'm going to put the 0.8 hash mark dead center of the target, 0.8 to center. If I take that little bitty hash mark, my two tenth hash mark at 0.8, I'm going to draw an invisible dotted line and extend it. So it almost becomes the new center of my crosshair. Then I stop my horizontal line, okay? So my horizontal line is completely across the middle. My vertical line, which is now at 0.8, that's my 0.8 hash mark, is in the center. That would still be an example of quartering the target. So it's using the largest part of the target to your advantage and it's cutting a target into four equal pieces regardless of the size, okay? So that would be an example of quartering the target. It's how you align your reticle, your crosshair to it. Okay, um, what else we got going on? Let's see another question here. Uh, thank you, Fundamental Frank. Um, Frank, haven't taken a zero to deadly class from Rex. I found the class style very good. I plan on taking the seminar and live fire class from Rex. The class is from you. Um, funds, of course, are an issue. As a prior Navy instructor, I found taking classes from other instructors facilitators helped me become a better instructor by learning their styles. As a student, I try to take classes from multiple trainers. It helps me learn. Um, their styles and strengths. I find your review fair and balanced, AT1. All right, thank you, Joker. I appreciate that. I tried to be fair and balanced with that, and that was a, um, that was a big thing. Um, great, great podcast, Frank. There isn't very many trainers, instructors, teachers that would go to other people's courses. A lot of them seem to think they know everything. Training the trainer is a brilliant scenario and very down-to-earth for you to spend your own money and to go to Rex's course. I love his Sniper 101 videos and great content, but Frank is the tops for me. Thank you, Marty O'Monster. Um, but yeah, it, it's all good. Like I said, um, let's see what we got going on. So yeah, yeah, it's totally, um, that's that's the key to all of it. It's it's like there's always a way to learn something from somebody else. There, You know, there's takeaways. Hey, don't make this mistake. Because I get on tangents. I go on my own direction. And when you see somebody else do it, it might help you, like, edit yourself. Wow, okay, I do that same thing. And you know what? If How do I feel when it's being done when I'm on this end of it? Okay, well, when I'm on, when I'm that end of it, I got to modify that. I got to adjust it. So um, all good stuff. Um you know, so really, really good that. And then Rex did come on and, and did post. Howdy, Frank. It was awesome having you come out. Uh, I sincerely appreciate it. This is Rex. Uh, constructive criticism from federal professional. I admit that each seminar demographic is unique. But, yeah, so Rex is definitely on it. He gets it. And, and I just wanted it to be constructive and positive and not immediately go to the negative. Um, trying to be that better, smarter guy and not do the complete negative stuff. Um, so you went to class to learn how you might become a better teacher by observing students. Yeah, I don't want to get too much. Um, thanks for the info on the barrel fluting affecting harmonics. Looking forward to more on that. Glad you all had a good uh, a good weekend. Shared experience can build strong bonds. Gary, uh, something like that. Uh, then Ryan Bauer, Jesus, he liked other uh, in review. 
Uh, Dave, the instructors tendency to be a major in the minor. That's why they can't streamline. So, yeah, just different stuff. All right. But then one other thing I want to get into now, um, I covered most of the pod beans up until the, uh, that last class, most of the uh, questions that are on my main page of the Podbean app. There was a question, and people were talking about my left-hand gain twist. And as an example, like I'm shooting the Valkyrie right now. My Valkyrie that I've been shooting is a left-hand gain twist. Okay, it's it's it happy with different. So what are the pro and cons that I found? Well, so far I haven't found a con. Okay, I haven't seen anything other than you have to spec it out, order it, and get it from a good builder. I'm using all Bartlands. So boom, we're doing a conservative one inch gain. Actually, it's a three quarter gain, but we're not doing a big gain twist. We're doing small gains. Okay. Keeps the pressures down, so your load, it's be, it's easier for load development. It's more forgiving for different weights of bullets. It's a pressure thing. Hornaday took gain twist barrels and tested pressure-wise, and they saw very positive results with the pressure curve using a gain twist barrel. Okay, One of the misconceptions out there is that you're overlaying the, the lands and grooves onto the bullet and like doubling up the... Um, you know, the markings on it there, however you want to look at it. No, that's not what happens. It's still only the, 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 those, that one set. Okay. It does not change them as well as there's a boundary layer over the bullet. And that doesn't really have as big of an effect as you think it does. But I have found that it's gentler to shoot on me as a right-handed shooter. I like the recoil impulse better especially with positional shooting, I think the recoil impulse is smoother and straighter, okay? Load development, easier, faster, okay? We're seeing increased muzzle velocity with some of these guys, okay? Then, as you go out to distance, all our errors right now stack to the right. Spindrift, Coriolis, if you want to go the odd Vosh and Magnus effect, however you want to look at it, then you throw a right-handed shooter on top of it, with his right-hand trigger control errors, go right, go right, go right. And many of them will throw that spin drift error into their trigger control. They combine them, right? I mean, everybody that wants to add spin drift to stuff, it's 1% of your elevation, guys. 1% of your elevation. If you're putting in more than that in, odds are it's part of you. Either a can't. We see a lot of people with loose bipods and all that can't their rifles. Well, I mean, we did it this weekend in class. We had a guys that were kind of pushing some things over a little bit, changed their bipods out, tighten them down with a pod lock if they got a Harris. I actually loaned out some of my Harris's this past weekend because they had pod locks on them. They were pan and tilt models. They had pod locks versus the models I replaced, which some of them were no uh, no uh, pan and tilt, no canting in the Harris. It was the, the flat ones. And then... They were like kind of a pain in the neck to use. So I said, hey, try this to get you straight. That way when you dig in the dirt, if you move around, you start to move over. But, okay, that's the thing. The left-hand gain twist works. It works well. And it's not adding on and you're getting much better results. Okay, the Coriolis stuff is... Well beyond a thousand yards. If you're honestly, if you're shooting this stuff inside a thousand yards, you shouldn't be putting on anything Coriolis or Spindrift. 
If you're playing that game, you're lying to yourself and you're trying to fool your brain into saying you know what you're doing because you you're, you have a fundamental issue and you're trying to mechanically fix it w- with the scope. You know what I mean? Okay, I'll dial more spin drift on to fix my bad fundamentals. I'm canting, I'm pulling to the right, and so I've now increased the offset and the variation to a degree we can all see it. And they go, look, oh, look, I could show it to you. It's right here. You know, and it's like, okay, what's you? What's this? What's that? These guys are running supercomputers, ProDAS, Six Degree of Freedom modelings, and they're finding it's about 1% to 1.2% of elevation. You starting to add it on inside a 1,000 yards isn't happening. You need 10 mils, 10 mils to dial on 0.1%. If you're shooting anything inside of 10 mils, you're not dialing for spin drift, okay? You're dialing for something completely different. So think about what your elevation you're dialing is and how many clicks you're adding on for this perception of spin drift you're seeing. Not so much, okay? 0.1, 10 mils. Metric system, slide the decimal point. Boom, 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 okay? (laughs) We got more... More people coming on. I swear to God, they got to be like trolling. It's so funny. More more MOA versus mill. What should I buy? MOA versus mill. What should I buy? Uh, right, Mo Mike, who was on the line. We had Moa Mike. Moa Mike. We had one guy in the class who was MOA uh, this past weekend. One dude. Okay. How was his communication? How are things working out for him? Especially when we're teaching you a win class. That's a big part of what's going on. In you're the wrong format. You know what I mean? Think about that. We're talking wins, you know, oh, use your BC, this number, that number. Go over here, do this, go do that. Boom. Now just dial on point four and go. And it's like, I'm mill. Oh, sucks to be you, dude. Or not mill. I'm in my way. <laughs> Sorry, I got myself all confused. I'm in my way. It's like, sucks to be you, dude. Convert it. You know? It's like, yeah, it it, it really is a handicap now in today's age and age to be, I mean, unless you shoot by yourself. I mean, if you're not in a class, if you're not out in a match, if you're not, if you're just a guy who goes out by yourself, doesn't matter what you use. Minute of Frank, right? Doesn't matter. It's, 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 it's wide open field. You can use anything you want because you're only playing with yourself and you can do it any way that floats your boat. So I'm not talking to those kind of guys. I'm talking to the ones that are out in the real world, having competitions, wanting to see what's going on, taking classes, wanting to learn that. Yeah, there are MOA formulas. You could do the British method, right? 10-mile-an-hour wind at 600 yards is 6 MOA, but that's for, like, a specific bullet. 308, 168, going 2550. Okay, then it starts to play around now once you do it. Our mill version is using your stuff. Your bullet, your system, we're ter- determining what your gun's mile per hour is. And that's why it's a much easier way of doing it. So there's another benefit in the mill versus MOA argument is your win calls are easier in mills, right? So that's what we're looking at. Easier win calls, easier different things to do. But um, no, some really good questions, some really good stuff out there. If you want to get into the discussion, I'm actually going to go in to the Sniper's Hide Everyday Sniper Forum section. I'm going to post some answers to that left-hand gain twist stuff. I'll do some follow-up with some of the different questions I've been reading. I didn't read the Sniper's Hide stuff. Maybe the next one I'll do it. 
I definitely have to get in and get some phone calls made and some people. Uh, I haven't forgot about um, Justin up there in New Hampshire. I will I will get you on the line. I've just been between the class, between this, between that. It's been a pain in the butt doing some different stuff, trying to get caught up. I still got a ton of video to do. I got a whole chassis rundowns to work out with you guys. The replacement JP chassis is in. They got that all worked out. I really like that JP chassis, so I'm glad I got the new one. Um, you know, and all it was is that Arca rail was a little bit, no big deal, man. It's, it's, it's replaceable. The rest of the chassis was money. Uh, I really thought it fit me well. It had a shorter stock. It was solid. It locked up good. I have the, um, two MDT chassis here that we'll talk about the strike nuke I have from Kdex. So I'm going to be playing with the Kdex strike nuke. I mean, you look at this, like Jay Allen went under. I haven't mentioned it much. I'm not a big Jay Allen user. I thought it was a little expensive but it was it's a nice stock right everybody loves the look the feel the whole thing with a jay allen stock well jay allen goes under right they closed their business they didn't say a whole lot about it but they shut down production so what are we going to replace the jay allen stock with well i'm going to take a look at this kdex the nuke the strike nuke right and, and and that might be your stock chassis replacement because there's an internal aluminum stock inside that strike nuke so you're kind of getting best of both worlds again and you know talking with kdex and the more that comes up with that it may be open and i'm sure they will be open to modifications that bring it back into the same realm as a jay allen type of stock it's not super dissimilar from the outside looking in but from the inside looking out you start there's definite changes that come about but, um, yeah, I mean, never talked about the fact that Jay Allen's under, out of business now, if you hadn't heard that. But those Jay Allen stocks, the JAEs, that you see a lot of PRS guys using is gone. So where, where are the chassis coming from? You know your main ones are going to be your MDTs, your AIs. I'm still running the AI. My Valkyrie's in an AI and all that, the AX chassis. I dig them, right? This, um, the, the, I got the McMillan stock here, so I'll do the Strike Nuke and the McMillan together. And uh, with the A10, because that's fitting me nice. I'm going to be out with that. And then I can do the MDTs in the uh, in the uh, JP Allen. So I'll be working the, the chassis and stocks over the next 30, 60 days. September is going to be another good month for me to do this as well. Uh, so uh, I only have the, small, the short Minnesota class. But other than that, it'll be really good. But lots of chassis going on here. So throw me your chassis questions, guys. Come out here, post your stuff about chassis. What, what, when you're looking at buying a stock, you're looking at upgrading something, you know, and, and think about this. Where did I put the money and the consideration into the APO rifle, right? Where did everything go dollar-wise into the chassis system, right? We, we made sure we hit specific marks with the stock. That's your point of human contact. You know, chassis, the barreled actions are easy. It's the stock. It's your point of human contact. It's what elements work for you. What are you going to do which will determine what kind of stock and chassis you're going to use? Is it just a purely looks thing? Is it a dollar thing? Is it a function thing? So throw your stock, throw your chassis questions at me. I got them all out here ready to go. I'm ready to jump on it. Uh, barreled actions are getting added to all of them as we speak. And, and let's go to town. I mean, I've put 
so much effort into talking bipods. Now let's talk our stocks and chassis, okay? That's a direction that's super easy that we could start moving forward with. And I really do think like with the MDT, they're doing like a stock or chassis giveaway pretty soon. MDT has really been moving the bar, moving the bar, taking the best elements of like your MPAs and your other stocks and chassis in making them mission specific. But with a crossover. No, good stuff, man. I, I, I really like the more and more and more you look at it. I really like what MDT's doing. I think they're doing some good stuff. I really like this JP. And then you're seeing a lot more people going back to the traditional stocks. So where are we bridging the gap between traditional stocks and modern application, right? So throw those questions out at me. Come on over. Let me know. Throw them on the Podbean app. Come into Sniper Side. Let's talk stocks and chassis, and let's get a conversation going on them. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for being part of the Everyday Sniper. Don't forget to come over to Sniper's Hide. Come up, register. Come have a conversation. Join us in the conversations. Um, you know, it's always fun over there, man. Whether if you just want to cut loose and, and be silly, you go in the bear pit or you go into Maggie's drawers into the bar and grill, right? You can be silly. But if you want technical, real information, and, you know, we don't suffer the fools that come in and say the silly stuff. Like some guy came on today. Really nuts, man. Dumbest thing I read on the internet today. Uh, saying, you know, you can't dry fire your rifle, you're going to hurt it. Because what happened was somebody installed the trigger. They lowered their trigger weight down. Now the firing pin's falling when they run the bolt. Okay? So that's a trigger thing. Well, he's thinking this guy posted that dry fire wore his sear. And that's why it's not engaging anymore. It's like, what are you, crazy? You can't dry fire a rifle, you'll ruin it. It's like, what? Yeah, 22 maybe. But even then nowadays they have ones you can dry fire. 22 you don't dry fire because it's a rim hit. Right? A center fire, you dry fire all day. But yeah, man, so um, yeah, come on over. It, it, it's fun. There's some, some good conversations in the forum. Things are running well. And uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm into it. All right, guys, thanks for being part of the Everyday Sniper, and we'll talk to you soon. Cheers.